Hello, and welcome to another episode of Tome to the Weather Machine podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Hall. And in this interview, I talked to Dylan Edinger, who creates noise and experimental music under his own name and with the group House Who Fell. Dylan and I share in common being brought up Mormon and becoming disaffected with the church. So we spent a lot of time geeking out about Mormon history and scholarship. But we also hit on some really important musical developments in Dylan's life, including the slippery slope from corn to wolf eyes. It's all there. Please support House Who Fell's music. Their album, Winter on the Hill Camorra, which we discuss at length, is an incredible album that explores some of the darkest and least well-known aspects of Mormon and American history. Also, if you want to support the podcast, consider becoming a Patreon subscriber and getting exclusive mixes from myself and artists I interview. On with the show. Warsaw, Indiana, which is a, a small town, uh, like North Central Indiana, most known for its um, orthopedics industry. Thriving orthopedics industry. Yeah. Dr. Yeah, Scholz has a like a stranglehold on that town. Uh, no, it's um, there's a couple of big orthopedic companies. Uh, the biggest one is Zimmer Biomet. It's a lot of uh, like artificial hips and knees manufactured there. So. Whoa. I bet that I, land. I bet that landfill is like gnarly. <laughs> I, I'm, just, I'm sure it is. All tons of, of uh, just tons of discarded limbs sticking up. Uh, so growing up in growing up in Warsaw is, is that a pretty big town, or is that you said like a suburb? Oh, it's a, it's a it's a pretty small conservative little town, um, out in the middle of nowhere, pretty much. It's about forty five minutes. Uh, driving to like the nearest decent sized city. So, and, and where is yeah. like the the nearest decent sized city to Warsaw? I guess Fort Wayne. Okay, uh, Indiana would be the, the 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 closest one that. I mean, it's it's. I think at the time I was growing up there, the second largest city in Indiana. Gotcha. Um, but it's. I mean, Fort Wayne still wasn't like a bustling metropolis by any means. They yeah. just had a couple shopping malls. So when did you first, uh, or I guess I could say, like, what were some early experiences that you had with music that seem memorable now? Um, well, I was always kind of around music. My grandfather was an elementary school music teacher. Um, 
and it was just like my aunts all play instruments. My mom is my mom and dad aren't musical, but um, most of my family is. So I was always kind of was always kind of in the background. Um, but I didn't really start to get kind of more interested in music or um, want to do it or try it on my own until like I would say probably until I was in like fourth or fifth grade. I started listening to the radio or no third grade yeah when I was in about third grade I I got a rate about like a little radio uh, with my birthday money and uh, my mom would always play like alt rock radio in the car and so I would just like obsessively listen to the radio and I would um the this radio station I was obsessed with they were called 96.3 the edge they would have a um every Monday night it was called the cage match where there would be two songs uh, and they would play them through the course of like the show. They'd go back and forth every play them each once, like every hour for like two or three hours. And then you could call in to vote for which song you liked better. And uh, um, I would listen to that show every, every Monday night. Um, and some of the songs that would like, that went on, on winning like hot streaks were like uh, pink triangle by Weezer one for like weeks at a time and then like the the dominant song uh and eventually i i gave up listening to it to this this show because i got so sick of the song but for like a month and a half straight uh tub thumping by chumbo wumba one so yeah that was kind of like when i started to like really i guess engage with uh music on a level beyond just like it being in the background it's like when i when i would start to you know listen to music on the radio as like a more active experience yeah so i guess that would have placed that kind of like uh mid to late 90s yeah yeah it would have been like 97 98 yeah yeah so yeah so that's really interesting so the kind of uh staple like alt rock station um you you would like sit up and like listen to that like actively listen through the commercials to like know which song would win that week yeah yeah and i would i would try to call in if my parents would let me too i was i was Did you ever get like, through i don't i you know i don't remember um i do remember one occasion when i was younger where i called in to the, the local oldie station i was probably like six or seven years old and requested the boys are back in town by thin lizzy though <laughs> nice i was i was really young um, that's a good song yeah i Last. the only experience i've had calling into a radio i was probably like sixth grade um i called in <laughs> and i requested not a surf popular do you know that song yeah yeah and and the radio like the guy's like I'm like can you play popular by not a surf and he goes no <laughs> just hangs up <laughs> yeah, blooded. i know so um yeah i stopped stopped calling into the radio after that uh, i was really really at that age i was super into casey Kasem's top 40 like okay. i i wanted to know like every uh every week like who was number one and like what got bumped up and i remember probably like the one the couple of weeks probably um that enigma um do you remember enigma 
Yeah, you know, like the, Innocence. Oh my God, yeah. yeah. Uh, I remember that being like the, the top song. I think that's like what fucked me up for life. Like was getting super, super into Enigma at a really, really young age. I loved, loved that song, loved that album. Um, yeah. I remember, yeah, I remember the, I remember it mostly from the Pure Moods infomercial. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh my God, like I, yeah, still, still stands up. Pure Moods. <laughs> yeah, uh, Fun. I have a, a quick little funny anecdote about pure moods. When I was in college, um, I came home late from a party and was like borderline blackout, like blackout drunk. And uh, I, I thought I just went home and, and went to bed, but I woke up the next day and I had uh, downloaded the entire pure moods compilation and had listened to half of it before I fell asleep and completely forgot about it. But, That's uh, probably this the best. Yeah, that's probably the best way to absorb pure moods. Like, just through your subconscious. <laughs> like, yeah. Yep, definitely. Nice. So, uh, so growing up, so kind of the, the staple, like, alt-rock, um, like, channel was pretty, um, was pretty important. Do you remember, like, when you first started purchasing music? And, like, what were some of those records? Yeah, the first CD I ever had was Americana by The Offspring um and is, uh, is that the cover with like the kid holding the bug yeah 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 the, I, I, I can picture it now yeah 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 because i i had liked the offspring before um because they were on the radio constantly like i knew self-esteem and and all all their 90s hits um but i was just just at the right age for when pretty fly for a white guy came out to think that was like the funniest coolest thing ever and yeah. um it's a pretty short window like yeah, of the yeah, age yeah. of like that demographic when like that was <laughs> cool yeah it's like that that record was kind of like half like like horrible like novelty comedy pop punk but there's like one song on there that i was like i was like man it's like, it like and uh the kids aren't all right that's the good one that's the that's that was like their serious song on that record. That, that was the one I liked the most. But the, uh, yeah, that was that was the yeah. first CD I bought. Uh, that's like the one about like, like somebody oh Dean and Dad so like commit suicide. Yeah, oh, yeah I remember yeah, that. I was yeah. like, whoa. <laughs> I don't want to go to high school, man. Like, <laughs> sounds intense. <laughs> yeah. Um. So drawing a line between like the offspring and kind of like American, like uh, kind of like where like pop punk and like alt rock kind of like bled over in, in that time. Did things go like down a deeper rabbit hole as you got maybe a little bit older? Yeah. Yeah. So I was, you know, into the radio and that kind of turned into uh, MTV and, and, and VH1. Uh, and then through the, the real turning point for me was when I got into like uh, new metal because that quickly introduced me to like real metal, hardcore, metalcore. Um, so like one of the like biggest, I guess, Corn and, and Slipknot were the acts that really pushed me from like the main, took like basically pierced the veil and allowed me to to go through to like underground music. Like Corn and Slipknot are like both 
have multiple platinum selling records. They're not underground at all, but that they, you know, led me to, to finding, um, you know, like Sepultura and, you know, other, other bands that got me into like thrash and, you know, hard, like there was a, a local hardcore scene, um, that I was able to kind of break into through all that too. So that was like my, my, my gateway into actual like underground and, and DIY music. Yeah. So the, uh, so I can kind of see like the lineage a little bit of starting with like, like corn and uh, like Slipknot and then kind of like, kind of the second tier kind of like of those like American heavy metal bands, like, and then, then kind of, digging a bit deeper into yeah so that would have been like early 2000s so like yeah metalcore was like becoming a, a real thing yeah yeah so I was like I was into that stuff and I started hanging out with like the 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 punk and metal kids at school uh when I was in like seventh or eighth grade and they were also they were getting into like there were a lot of like Christian hardcore bands that would come through my hometown. This, this conversation comes up so many times of like getting like the Christian metalcore scene. Yeah. Well, it's because it's because these Christian metalcore bands would play to, you know, youth groups of like 12 people in places like Warsaw, Indiana. And like they would act, they're the only bands that would come through. So I saw like Norma Jean on one of their first tours. Oh ever. I saw Zayo play in like the center Lake pavilion, like, uh, less than a mile from where my parents live right now like um dashboard confessional played in my hometown before he blew up like they were um yeah there was somehow some weird little christian metalcore pipeline that ran right through my my hometown and that goes mostly back to uh one dude uh, who booked most of those shows that i'm i'm still actually pretty pretty tight with um but yeah that was the, the whole Christian hardcore scene was my first introduction to an actual like underground community of, of music. So that, that's what brought you out to shows, right? So that's what, yeah. Yeah. Kind of getting in, in introduced into that aspect of music. Yeah. 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 yeah definitely. Sure. And like, you could disagree with me, but like some of those Zhao records and some of those Norma Jean records still stand up. Like, oh they absolutely do every bangers. once in a while i'll i'll smoke a shitload of weed and put on where blood and fire come to rest or whatever uh and i'm just like damn these guys had riffs yeah 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 the the first like three or four zale records i think hold up real well and the, that first norma Jean record has some decent songs on it too um but yeah, yeah like some of some of that stuff holds up pretty well but most of it is pretty embarrassing. You had to get like the sweet spot, like anything after like 2003 or 2004, unless well, it's like, from, like a secular group, like Converge or something. Anything after that is like, pretty, pretty bleak. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like the further you go in the 2000s, like you had diminishing returns on metalcore, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like in and of itself. So yeah. Um, so this is maybe, okay, so this is where maybe our shared history kind of like diverges a little bit. So growing, so we both grew up Mormon. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's interesting how, like, I found that out. So I was getting, uh, so my, my label, Whited Sepulchre, I was getting some t-shirts made by Sage Weatherford. 
and he was asking me about some like the occult references um, of my of my label. Um, the, the White Sepulchre label or the logo is the master's carpet, like the Masonic master's carpet. So it's kind of basically like the master key of all the Masonic occult symbols. Yeah. And so he's asking me about that and I'm just like, oh, kind of give him the short answer. Like, uh, like I grew up Mormon and this is kind of like my fuck you to the Mormon church, right? It's kind of like exposing all of the secrets and the symbols and stuff like that. Um, and then he's like, oh, well, have you heard uh, House You Fell? I'm like, no. He's like, oh yeah, like I just did like some t-shirts for them. And, um, you know, they like really kind of go deep into some like, uh, like Mormon like mythology and like Mormon like American history um, and stuff like that and so yeah reached out to you and um, I, I just think it's really interesting just to talk uh, talk to people in general who grew up religious and who are now like making more kind of like esoteric music um, and so when like growing up listen like I listened to corn and I listened to some of that some of that music but for me it was like I had to hide it you know what I mean like I can never buy the records I would just borrow them from my friends and um and like always have this tinge of guilt even though like I was just like oh fuck this riff rules then then I'm like oh but it's too dark like I can't <laughs> you know yeah. like I this I shouldn't be listening to this um, was that different for for you? Did was there a time where you were just like, you know what, like I'm gonna kind of like, I don't know, embrace this or or, or not really care what um, if if you got any sort of pushback from like your parents or your religion or anything like that? It's it's interesting because my experience was pretty different. My dad converted to the my my mom grew up in the church. Um, my dad converted when I was, uh, I think I was, when I was like eight or nine years old. And so um, my mom was a little lackadaisical and like enforcing like kind of church um, ideals at home. And my dad was a little more gung-ho uh, being a convert. That's usually what you run into in my experience. Like the people who, who didn't grow up in the culture, I think, feel like they have something to prove and kind of lean into things a little harder. And uh, I was getting sick of that. And like, I was finding all this like super sick music and like getting really excited by it. And part of what drew me to something like Slipknot was the overt, like blasphemous imagery, like seeing them with like pentagrams on their jumpsuits and like, um, you know, singing like if you're five, 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 I'm six, six, six all the, all the satanic stuff was like really exciting to me. And I kind of like latched onto all that as sort of like a, a um, means of, of rebellion. But my dad, um, he just was cool with it. Like it didn't work. Like he was just like, well, you know, when I was your age, like my dad didn't like the music I listened to. I'm not going to be like him and tell you, you can't listen to what you want. Now, now I just kind of took that as like a, all right, cool. Let's see how far I can fucking take this. And I just kept going and going. And like, the more I got into it and the more I kind of like made it a, um, you know, when you're a teenager, early teenager and you get into music, it becomes as much of a lifestyle thing as anything else. So I would be going into hot topic 
and like save up my allowance and buy a slipknot t-shirt and like I had like studded bracelets and you know I started spiking my hair and I'd go to you know I'd, I'd still have to go to church and go to young men's and Sunday school and, and, and scouts and shit but I'd, I'd show up to scouts on on Wednesday uh, or young men's wearing a corn t-shirt and like all the pushback I got from being into that stuff was was from my peers and the uh, leadership at church. My parents didn't like didn't care at all. Like maybe my dad did wasn't comfortable with it, but he never told me I couldn't or made me feel like I was not allowed to be into that stuff. He almost took me and my friend to go see Slipknot in concert when when we were in eighth grade. So. Wow. What did some of that pushback look like? Oh, it was mostly, it was pretty brutal, honestly. Um, So like I would get teased a lot by the other um, like young men in my like deacons quorum or priest quorum. Like they were pretty shitty to me because I was, you know, being a weirdo. Uh, And what finally, um, (laughs) this is kind of insane um but what finally like made it like so yeah I I would get picked on a lot but finally I was my dad made it so I wouldn't have to like he didn't force me to go to church any longer after my Sunday school teacher um called me gay in the middle of Sunday school class and like the other kids in the class kind of like ganged up on me and shit and uh I like went and I told my parents and uh, my dad was like, all right, I get it. I'm not going to make you go to church anymore. Um, and the, the, the Sunday school teacher, like he got, uh, he got released from his calling and you know, he got actually, he'd gotten in trouble for some other shit too. That was not the first, uh, the first time he could cross the line, but yeah, all the, all the pushback was in, in like situations like that where people from the church thought they knew better than my parents and tried to intervene. There was another person who, another guy, an older guy, I think he might've even been one of the, the counselors in the bishopric, took me aside one, one Sunday. It was like, I'm really concerned about the choices you're making in your life and they're, how they're going to lead to you, you know, screwing up and whatever. And I'm just like, who, who the hell are you? Like, yeah. Like to say this shit to me, you're just some fucking jackass that works at a goddamn like construction supply store. Like go fuck yourself. You know, that sounds really, uh, that sounds very common. Sort of that very passive aggressive. Um, oh, it's because we are, we are concerned, you know, for you. Oh, it's extremely Mormon. Yeah. 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 And honestly, I'm really surprised that, um, your Sunday school teacher got in trouble for that. I mean, the the amount of like misogynist and like homophobic shit, like I heard from my Sunday school teachers and like scout leaders and stuff, like when we were like cool, you know, like when we were like on campouts and stuff like that, it's like, we're gonna tell you how things really are. And, you know, it was just like mind blowing. So it's, it's amazing that that like, there was any sort of repercussion, but that does, I mean, of course, in any context, it's crossing the line. Yeah, well, I think it's because I went and told my parents right away. And I think I think my dad had my yeah. back, and my sister was in Sunday school with me, and so she could like. Oh corroborate yeah, it. yeah. Well, so, and 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 that's so cool that your I mean, dad like stuck up for you like that because I I don't know if you've ever heard this in the church, but there's this phrase, and I heard heard my mom say it yesterday, it drove me nuts. She said, "Well, you can choose to be offended, 
Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure I've heard my grandmother say that. Quite yeah. A bit. Yeah. And, and so that, well, that's awesome that like he had had your back and, and, and it sounds like in, in some ways supported your decision, like not to go back. Yeah. It was a, quite a fight though, to get sure. to the point where he yeah. wouldn't force me to go any longer. Yeah. Uh, it sucks. It had to get that far, but eventually he did relent, which I know people who had, you know, had to go through the shit until they were 18 or older uh, because of the pressure from their families. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that's interesting that sort of listening to um, like punk and hardcore or darker music, the, the, the kind of the tenet is like, think for yourself, right? It's like, we're going to yeah. confront you with all of this sort of like, overtly uh sort of like antisocial, overtly dark overtly like satanist you know like imagery and it's up to you to decide you know like whether to take this seriously or whether to like you know use it as like a launching off pad to like you know like think about like these institutions that were supposedly like in opposition against so i i think that's i think that's cool that that like in some ways that message kind of got through you oh yeah and it also helped um like to have you know exposure to that through art and then uh, a group of friends through school who were also like kind of in into the, the same things in a on a similar level and i um was also uh so like my friends were way more into punk than i was i was always more into into metal um, and hardcore, um, but through my friends, I was also, like, introduced to, like, radical politics through music, like, leftist politics. Um, there was a, a local band called Ingsoc, based on, uh, the George Orwell book, and, um, that was, like, kind of, they were kind of, like, the old, cool, older punk kids that I would hang out with, and so I was, like, getting, like, into like you know playing with like the you know the symbolism of Slipknot and like stuff like System of a Down was probably like my first like like the album Toxicity and some of the lyrics on there were like the first introduction to some of these political ideas and then I would hang out with these kids and they'd be like oh yeah the United States is fucking evil and I was like whoa that's cool what do you mean <laughs> that's, that's the coolest thing I've heard tell, tell me, me more, more. Yeah. <laughs> and so I mean that was in like that was in like 2002 2003 so early Bush years right after 9-11 and that stuff felt so dangerous to talk about and so cool like reading 1984 when you're like 13 years old and all your friends are listening to anti-flag and you know stuff like that this was just super exciting and like really really formative especially coming from such a you know cultural and, and religiously uh, conservative background to have all that kind of explode around me all at once. Definitely, uh, definitely formative, formative, formative period of my life. For sure. I was talking to uh, Daniel Weish uh, last week and I, I was telling the story, but basically like I became exposed to politics through like the back of a voice that's fire CD. Like reading, yeah, reading all their like liner notes and stuff like that. Like, like looking back, like that's what, 
informed my decision 100% to be a social worker um, was like learning that like there was all these groups that were like working together to like address like these big causes. Um, and back then it was like uh, anti-WTO stuff. And um, yeah, so like definitely can fill you on that, that um, if the more that you kind of dig in like past the sort of symbolism and, and more into like the, in some bands that have good politics, um, you know, the, the, like the political nature of like the lyrics and, and just the, the sort of like just set in defiance attitude towards the United States, towards like these systems of oppression. Yeah, it was, I mean, for, for me, it was kind of like the experience of like the, the, the taboo imagery and taboo politics at the time uh, were, were very, very closely linked. I'm, you know, so like Slipknot was my entry point to like, yeah, this shit's scary. Like this shit's bad. I like it. And then I hear, would hear, you know, people talk about imperialism and, and, you know, like, like why the war in Iraq is fucked up. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you're right. That's cool. But like, it was like this a similar kind of appeal to me, I guess. Um, but of course, you know, one is more, the, the political edge of, or side of that is is much more there's much more to chew on there and, and much more to uh is far, ended up being far less superficial but it was to me it was very closely linked yeah well i mean i don't think you can discount any sort of entry point you know in, into that um and in some cases like it's in like it starts as like an almost an aesthetic thing right where it's just like yeah what like there's something about that that i think is like cool and but sort of off-putting and so you, you kind of natural curiosity kind of digs you like causes you to dig deeper i remember that my first experience with that was in like sixth grade my friend had a uh, rage against the machine evil empire uh t-shirt and he's like you know what the evil empire is the united states and i'm like what yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I didn't get into rage until later, but I'm sure I would have had the same experience. Yeah. Like, what are you talking about, man? That's, that's great. <laughs> uh, so where did, um, so where did that kind of lead to? So growing up kind of being gravitating more towards kind of the more metal end of like heavier music, um, but also like being embedded in these kind of like, you know, hardcore scenes and stuff like that where how did that inform some of the music that you're making now or kind of that you would eventually become that you would eventually make yeah so it pretty quickly from when i was like I, most of high school i was listening to like predominantly like hardcore and i was really i was really into the locust and 31g records fuck yeah and, and, love 31g Hell yeah. Yeah, that this shit was so cool. Um 31G like Gravity Records, like that yeah, that stuff has such a strong place in my heart. Yeah, it's it's classic stuff. Um and I was really into um Converge, probably still one of my my favorite bands. Like Gate, I, I don't think gateway like drug band for so many things. Yeah, yeah. And I I, I still enjoy them. Um I don't I don't think I'll ever grow out of them. I kind of hope I I don't 
because that would mean they'd start be start making bad records and I don't want them to yeah they have but uh so through there I I got into like more abstract and, and harsher music one of my friends uh he had an older brother who's into Converge and they went up to Chicago and saw uh Wolf Eyes open for Converge when I was in high school and he came back and was like man I saw this band called Wolf Eyes over the weekend with my brother and it was the most fucked up shit and I was like all right tell me more and then so like through the locust I got into like you know Charles Bronson man is the bastard and then that leads to bastard noise and that leads to White House and so like more and more like harsh experimental stuff and then I you know that led to more like psychedelic music like noise stuff like double leopards axolotl uh Malvis and that got me into more like drone and later ambient music and basically just like hardcore was the point of entry for underground music and that led to like being into almost like every kind of like abstract uh experimental music I could I could get my hands on um I was uh, um making like solo harsh noise by the time I graduated high school um, Damn. and and playing, playing shows to like people who are just like totally fucking annoyed and confused by it all. And yeah. I just, didn't, the more people didn't like it, the more encouraged I was. Was there any sort of scene or anybody who was doing that kind of music or any reference point that people had for like what you're doing? No, <laughs> not yeah. where I was. I, I was, <laughs> I was really, I was like very, very online because it was my only access to this kind of stuff. Cause I, I had a couple of friends that I would show it to and like half of it would stick. Like I had one buddy that I would play music really into like boredoms and, and he eventually got into like some more of like the Japanese prog, like ruins and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah, Zua. Uh, And he was a pretty, he was a pretty good homie to bounce stuff back and forth with, but like, I was definitely the first person to like show him like the really crazy stuff. And he was just like, this is wild. I'm in. Let's do it. Um, but it was basically just me and like my best friend in high school that were into this stuff. And we'd play out sometimes and it would be to, you know, we'd weasel our way onto hardcore shows and people were either like attentive, uh, but confused or just like completely disgusted by it. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite things. Um, and I, once again, I, I talked to Daniel Weish about this as well. Is watching people's reaction who've never been exposed to this before. Um, yeah. And watching like some people like try to like get it, you know, just like really, just like okay, like you know, like what does this mean, right? Uh, and then people who are just completely repulsed by it. Um, and yeah, I always want to like talk to those people after the show and just be like, so what, like, what did you think about that? What, yeah. um, what, 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 what was that experience like for you? Yeah, there's, there's one show, uh, I had some buddies that were in it, uh, like a Christian beat down hardcore band and they were playing a show up, up in, uh, Elkhart and, uh, at a church and I went with them and I, I did like a solo noise set. And uh, it was like a very, very like youth groupy, like religious um, type of 
situation. But when I started playing, uh, I would, I just had all my stuff laid out on the, on the floor, all my pedals and a synthesizer and everyone just sat in like a semicircle around me and politely listened to the entire set. And just like, we're like generally like really attentive and polite. And afterward, like there were people were real positive and like asked me questions about it. And it's to this day, one of like the most like receptive crowds I've ever had at like a church youth group, like Damn. hardcore show. You really, you really could have like broken into the Christian noise market with that. I don't know if there's much of a market, but I could have if I had just kept playing uh, playing youth group shows. Yeah, I wonder if there is. Uh, yeah. I know there's some like some Christian industrial, like um, oh, um, Mental Destruction. They did some records on on CMI, Cold Meat Industry. They were like a, a Christian group, and I think when you get more into like uh, like experimental folk and stuff like that, you sure, yeah, 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 traditional Christian stuff. But I don't think there's any like youth group core yeah 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 yeah. noise or industrial music i just i just always i I just always think that like whatever exists there's like the christian analog to it and so there's got to be you know somewhere yeah (laughs) there probably is yeah so what what were you recording or playing under what was your what was your name uh so i did like a solo project under my own name um, okay. That started in high school. Uh, I went on to do that for quite a while. Uh, had a little, little bit of success. Um, um, but yeah, I started doing like harsh noise, and by the end of it, it was almost like dark wave synth pop, like in like heavy kind of, almost like dubbed out kind of stuff. And then mm-hmm. I. I stopped that project and, and started Hasufel a couple years after that. But that took up, like, I did that solo deal, like, from the end of, end of high school, all through college. Uh, I did that for about eight, eight years or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh... oh, go ahead. Oh, no, no, go ahead. I was going to say, it was, like, it was like 2006 to 2013 or 2014, I was doing that project. Did you ever come through uh, Cincinnati? Yeah. Yeah, a couple times. Um, I played at this spot called, I think it's called like Bunk's, Bunk Spot or Bunk oh, yeah. Spade. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I uh, played there at least twice. Um, there's a guy I would crash with there, Kevin Bruce. I think he lives in New York now. Okay. But uh, yeah, it was it was always fun. It's... um. Yeah, it was Bloomington, so it was easy to go play there. And sure. like every time I would, every time I would tour, I would try to play there. And there's at least once when I just, me and my homies just drove over like on some Saturday night for a show. Yeah, all the all the shows I played there were were super cool. I think there's some video on YouTube of one of those shows. I'll send it to you later if I can cool. find it. Yeah, it's, yeah, cool. Um, and then you moved out to LA like you said five years ago. Yeah, yeah, 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I started Hasufel like 2017-ish. Okay, and tell me about Hasufel. Like, tell me how, how that project is maybe different than what you've been doing in the past. Yeah, so my my solo project was kind of like long running and it would kind of like morph and change based on like whatever I was into. 
And so like the discography um, is kind of all over the place, uh, you know, for that project. Um, and so I, I quit that um, and I kind of like got tired of like, for a little while I was, all I had done, like all my energy had gone into like making music and recording and playing shows, putting out records. And I, I kind of wanted a break from that. And so I stopped and I was just so burnt out because it was kind of all I had done um, for so long. I needed to catch my breath and I kind of was just like not feeling music for a while. And then I got, I got really into black metal again. Um, and I kind of like relearned how to be a, f a fan of music first. And then I was like, well, after like a couple years of just consuming music and just enjoying it and not participating in it, I was like, all right, it's time for me to get back, get back in it and, and start working on stuff again. And um, I kind of was talking to one of my coworkers uh, here in LA about starting like a, uh, a metal band, but with me playing synthesizers instead of having like a bass player, like I would play all the bass lines on a analog synth. And we were kind of bouncing ideas back and forth. And he, he was in like three or four other bands like touring and putting out records. So it just never worked out. But I was like, I liked the idea of doing, you know, like um, making metal without any metal whatsoever. And I had been into like industrial music and, and dark ambient stuff for quite a while. And, um, was kind of trying to wait, find a way. I was interested in finding a way to like take, some of like the atmosphere of, of black metal uh, and like translate it into like weird electronic music. And I got really excited about like what that could be and how I could, you know, manifest that. Uh, and that's kind of how, yeah, that's, that's how Hasufel started. Cool. So tell me about your latest record that you just put out winter on the hill Kimura. that's one of those um for me it's like an insider baseball record you know yeah. it's just like um the uh the the dudes who did the book of mormon play like they did this they did, did this interview and the interviewer asked them like like how are the mormons like with your play they're like they're actually really cool like actually we can tell when mormons are in the audience because like we slip in like a super like deep cut joke and they're like oh they got you know they got alma like they got him um so with winter on the hill kimura um a lot of like kind of overt like um references to to kind of that era of <clears throat> like um 18th or 19th century mormonism um you know joseph's death, ma death mask is on the is on the cover kimura referring to, um, you know, the hill where uh, Joseph Smith claimed to find the golden plates. Um, yeah, tell me a little bit about what went into writing that record and some of the themes that you were exploring. That was, uh, yeah, um, it's always fun to run into someone who picks up on all the little details of that. Um, but it was a pretty heavy experience for me. Like when, once I left the church, 
Um, I had never really thought about how that experience growing up in that environment had like affected me. And I went through like a, a, a stretch where I kind of was like reassessing my relationship to the church. Uh, and it was like really, really like heavy. Like I was like, oh man, like I've been out of the church for like 15 years, but there's still ways in which like those teachings affect the way I think and how I approach the world. And, and I just was like really overwhelmed by this thing that even though I had left the church, the church had never left me. Um, and I started, you know, kind of like trying to make sense of the, the church uh, through like a historical context and a, um, a personal context at the same time. And so I kind of took what I was like researching and reading on my own. Um, Cause like most of my, most of my family is, is Mormon uh, still. A few of my family members have kind of left uh, here and there. And I have an uncle who um, has always been, you know, he grew up in the church and it, it is fascinating from a scholarly perspective. And he gave me all this reading material and all these recommendations. I just dove the fuck in. I read like two biographies of Joseph Smith. He was sending me all these articles um, like from Mormon scholars that had been excommunicated and stuff. What did so, you read? I'm, I'm curious which biographies you read. Uh, I read uh, No Man Knows Fawn Brody by Fawn Brody. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is a stellar book. It's Great. incredibly well written. Uh, so good. Very well researched. Like it's the definitive book on, on Joseph Smith. I also read uh, Rough Stone Rolling. Yep. Which that was... was equally intensely researched, but like, you know, it's basically like church approved. So yeah, a it's a little parts, bit more the, apologetic. So are, yeah, it's it's, but it's it, there is the the interesting thing I found about that book is how it looks at how Joseph Smith developed the doctrine of the church based on what was kind of going on around him and the needs of the church at the time. So even though it was like, you know, presented as like you know, like you said, it's like an apologetic book. Um, if you just read it straight like you can see oh yeah he made all this shit as he was going like it's all made up on the spot based on what he what he was into at the time and what was going on with the needs of the church and what he thought he could get away with my my um, two favorite my two favorite books on that subject are uh an insider's view of mormon origins by grant palmer um which is where i got the whited sepulcher logo from and uh, Joseph Smith and the Magical Worldview by D. Michael Quinn. I just got that book for my birthday. I oh my God, you will yet. love that book. Yeah. yeah. I've, been, I've been trying to get through some other ones first before I start that one, but that was my uncle recommended. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find this, uh, this Palmer book. I haven't read that one. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I will put that on my reading. <laughs> Thanks, yeah, man. No problem. Have you read... Um, have you read, um, oh, Under the Banner of Heaven? The, uh, yeah. That yeah, so I remember when that book came out, I was in high school, and to me, that was like anti-Mormon literature, so I, I wouldn't touch it, but I'd go to Borders, and I would like crack it open, and I would like read it, and I'd be like, I just shut it. But then I'd go back, I'd read more of like, oh, I need to shut this, and it, it yeah, it way into my adult 
life did I read that book. Um, but that really got me in a deep dive into the Mormon fen- fundamentalist um, sects that, you know, all happened after, you know, Joseph Smith and are continuing to like branch off and cut off to this day. It's super fascinating. It's incredibly fascinating. That's kind of where I heard about that, uh, that James, uh, James L. Strang character. Oh my God. Yeah. The Strangites. Yeah. That's one of the coolest little, uh, Beaver Island. Yeah. The key. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. That's, that was really fascinating to me. Like hearing about that, like Mormon history is just, if, if people haven't gotten into it at all, it is the most like absurd fascinating American like uniquely American story it's just mind-blowing it's amazing because it like Joseph Smith was like this like uh just like jet engine funnel of like all the stuff so it's like you've got like you know like millenarian like Christianity like Jesus is coming any day we need to get ready you've got like 19th century occultism that like start like that Joseph Smith was into way before he was into Christianity (laughs) and and that continues and continues to this day. Like, like we're like Mormons are like wearing symbols of like 19th century, like occultist belief, like retrofitted to like fit this kind of like, kind of like 1950s Christian theology that came later. No. Yeah. I completely agree. Like, yeah, the history of Mormonism is literally the most fascinating thing plus like it's got this whole like alternate history of the united states you know yeah which on its own is just insane to like dig into like i mean it's all clearly bullshit like it's like the the book of mormon is like patently false but like the fact that this dude could just come up with all this shit on the spot on the spot like that's the craziest thing he's just be like uh okay so this hill um was uh the site of a great battle between um this tribe and uh this tribe and oh these bones over here this is the these are the bones of uh this great lamanite uh captain who reigned from this like it's like it's like if you never grew out of like being a kid you know who is just like uh just would come up with stories to like impress like your parents and your friends but then you had like an army (laughs) you know like at your beck and call well that's that's how he got started with all these ideas is telling stories to his family oh yeah and they just kept egging him on like yeah von brody's book delves into that and explains like he just was an extremely imaginative kid and his parents and his entire family was so superstitious they just ate it all up yeah and you didn't have tv you know what i mean so like yeah you you have this kid who's just telling you these fantastic stories that some like that happened around your house because that's kind of all you knew (laughs) yeah yeah no it's i think it is like i think it is so incredible um and i think i don't know like deep down inside i think every mormon kind of knows that like yeah this like the early mormon stuff like yeah that probably didn't happen but (laughs) yeah you never you never get my grandma to admit it but uh yeah, it's it's crazy. And so, like, when I was working on the record, I got it took me like almost a year to write and record the whole thing because I would just get so caught up in the readings I was doing. I would spend like, you know, multiple weekends where I'd just like wake up, go for a run, eat lunch, read for six hours, and then just, you know, 
that was it. I would just wouldn't work on the music because I was so caught up in, in, in reading about this stuff. Cause it was like growing up in the church and not being, once I got out and being completely disinterested by it, thinking I knew everything about it because I grew up in it. I was like, why would I, you know, why would I read about the LDS church? Uh, and then once I started to, I was like, holy shit, I couldn't stop. Um, so yeah, the, the album is like a combination of like tracks that, re, you know, relate to specific historical events and historical like ideas of, of like how, I guess how, how the early church kind of came together. Um, you know, the, the first track on the, on the album is called The Pillar of Light, which was Smith described his first vision. Um, and then I have songs that are about like the weird, like apocalyptic militant sides of early Mormon doctrine, um, stuff like that. I have, you know, more, I guess, abstract stuff regarding like my personal experiences in the church. So it kind of runs the whole spectrum of like, um, you know, it's not just purely historical. It's not just purely personal. And it's not, I, it's not an anti-Mormon record either. I don't, I wanted to make that clear um, to people. Like when it came out, I was just like, well, this isn't me saying like, you know, screw the Mormon church. Like it's all, you know, hor horrible, evil institution. Like that wasn't what I made the album for. That's not what I was trying to say with the album. It was more just like an exploration. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I got no warm feelings toward the church at this point in my life. I, I There's very little I could, you know, defend them on um, but like the album is more of just like trying to wrap my head around everything and express it uh in a way that I could kind of I mean music's how I I process ideas you know one in one way or another and so going through that experience where like the heaviness of like realizing how much this institution has influenced my life and processing that this album is what came out of that uh, after like a year of writing and reading and all that. So it was a pretty, pretty crazy experience working on that. I hope, I hope people, uh, enjoy the album too. Um, yeah. And, and I, and I hope that it, you know, in, in some ways speaks to folks who, you know, might have their own stories in terms of like, um, reckoning with the past, right? Whether that is a religious past or, or, or something sort of like oppressive that they've kind of got out from under. I think it does a good job in kind of universalizing that experience. Um, but also I hope it like, I hope it inspires people to like look at Mormon history as like a his like a part of the history of the United States, right? Yeah. Um, because it's so it, intertwined, especially when you get into Brigham Young and, and Utah and everything. Oh my God, 100%. And we almost had a Mormon president. I mean, we didn't almost have a Mormon president, but you know, a Mormon president like could, like was the nominee, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, it's, it, it, it is a really fascinating slice of um, American history that gets, that just gets mind bogglingly weirder, the deeper the deeper you get into it and the level of depth is mind-boggling too like they mormons from the very beginning recorded everything 
you can go back to read talks from general conference before the, the shit was ever recorded. Like everything is on file, everything. My grandparents' house growing up was full of books on Mormon doctrine, full of books from all the authorities and presidency and like every, there's just so much literature. If you really get, want to get into the theology of Mormonism and, and the doctrine, it's, un, it's the ultimate like nerd pursuit because it, there's nothing that was ever said in general conference that isn't recorded and available. Right. Or, or even just like non, like not for public consumption, you know, kind of these one-off talks that these general authorities would give where they get like real deep, you know, and it's just like, wow, this is, this is literally the, the plot for Battlestar Galactica, which yep. it was, <laughs> which it was. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That's, oh man, that's, that's so cool. Um, yeah. I guess, you know, my experience with it, um, I left the church way later. Uh, I mean, way later. So like I was able to like repress these feelings of just not believing it, just like knowing that this like isn't real. <laughs> um, I got really good at that and went on like, I went on a mission. Like I, I, I went on a mission in Ooh. Seattle, Washington. Yeah. Um, got married in the Palmyra temple, just, uh, just outside of like the Hill Cumorah and just outside of the sacred grove. Damn, dude. Yeah. I got, um, you were deep. I was deep super deep. And then, uh, in grad school is when I, is like when I finally made the decision to like leave the church. Um, after like, and it wasn't like a slow burn for me. It wasn't just like, oh man, I'm having all these doubts. It was like, I kind of did what you did is like, I, I like for like six months, like all I did was just like hardcore, like deep dive into like Mormon history. And it was just like, yeah, this is like, it's like, <laughs> it's clearly false. Like it, it was just a squaring. It was like always a squaring of what I always believed, right? That this yeah. was false and that like, um, and I could always sort of justify like, you know, my, uh, passion for leftist politics by saying, well, if I wasn't in the church, you know, then there wouldn't be, you know, if like, let's say like, you know, that, that, you know, struggling gay Mormon kid, right. There wouldn't be anybody in the church to be like, Hey, it's like totally cool. Like you're totally fine. Like, don't worry about it. And then, yeah, all of that just like went away, like in an instant. And it was sort of like this it was like the most spiritual experience I've ever, I've ever had, where it's just like, you know, like, you don't believe this, you never have, like, now you can live the rest of your life um, unencumbered. But so I, I totally know the feeling of not being, um, like, leaving the church, but not letting it leave you. Like, yeah. I feel like so much of um, my thought process, so much of, like, a lot of internalized stuff is 100 percent uh like fed by the church and is kind of warped you know by by growing up that way um but in some ways i also feel like there's like this really strong um like this this very strong pursuit that i have for like justice and for like understanding like people who don't fit into that mold because like I could see there's a stark dichotomy. Like I could see there was like, 
the mainstream, you know, and this is what you had to do to like survive. And then people who like, just like, you know what this, you know, like this doesn't work for me. This doesn't fit for me. And I was always pulled in that direction, but I had very strong overbearing <laughs> parents, you know, who kept me in it for so long that, that just like, I never left that gra gravitational pull until I was well into, well into my adulthood. Yeah. I was very lucky to be born with a uh, natural uh, distrust and disdain for any and all authority figures. So a lot of the stuff I was like told at church just didn't stick. So I kind of was never, I mean, I got baptized. I did everything I was supposed to do, but I was always kind of just like, oh, I think these guys are all full of shit. <laughs> I was like, this all smells like bullshit to me. I don't trust any of these, any of these people. For some reason I had like a total blind spot, like not a total blind spot, but I could be like, wow, like, you know, like the war in Iraq is like a total profiteering colonialist move. But I'm like, I'm going to give that guy the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> you know, yeah. the guy who says he talks to God, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a crazy experience. Um, like I said, I was, I mean, I, I went through some shit to get out. Um, I'm glad. I'm glad I was able to, I mean, I wouldn't wish my experience on, on anyone really. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's good people in the church and people that mean well and people that are there because they think it's the best way for them to do good in the world. And yeah. I, I don't think that should ever be discredited, but just like any other culture, any other religion, it's like most of the people are just regular ass people and most regular people suck. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. So, yeah. I mean like there's, there's, like, and it's another thing I went into like reading and doing all these this research and kind of like reorganizing my thoughts around the, you know, the church. I went into it thinking I'd be like more angry uh, and it would just reaffirm like all the initial just like distrust and hatred I had toward the church. But the more I read and the more I understood it, the less I hated the church, if that makes any sense. Like the more I understood it to be like just another, you know, expression of people trying to like figure shit out. And Joseph Smith was a con man and a, you know, a rapist, but at the same time, like he was like incredibly creative and charming. And like, it's such a complicated figure. Like, I want to hate Joseph Smith, but there was stuff he did and said at the same time he was doing all the awful stuff. Like he was trying to run like a, a communitarian society where the prevalent goal of the church was just to take care of people who couldn't take care of themselves. And that was like the operating principle for the entire church during most of his lifetime. So like he was a piece of shit and he took advantage of people, but at the same time, like his ideals were not evil. Yeah, the Mormon church was a communalist, you know, institution, almost communist institution for yeah. most of the 19th, like most of the 19th century going into the 20th century. You know, Joseph Smith ran for president on like a platform of like prison reform, you know, and like abolition, <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, yeah so the, the, the phrase that I've heard that sticks with me the most was that he was a pious fraud. Yeah, I think I think he believed a lot of his own, you know, a lot of the, the, the stuff he would just, you know, be, 
Um, I think he got way too, I mean, he got killed because he got way too big for his britches. You totally. Know? That's and it's not any like. more, it's not any more believable than the Bible. You know what I mean? So no, if you, if, if you can take the leap of logic to like believe the stuff in the Bible, you know, why couldn't you be a prophet? And, you know, why couldn't, you know, like you just make up out of thin air, like the whole history, the prehistory of the United States. Yeah, and that's part of like the, the biggest part of the appeal to the early church was people were able to be like, all this all this stuff that happened in the Bible and stuff like that happening right here too, like right yeah. here in your backyard. Right. Like all those arrowheads you find, like those are Nephite Lamanite artifacts from the yeah. Book of Mormon. And people, Wh- people just so Yeah, it was exciting to people. It all yeah. makes it makes more sense like why the religion still exists and how it was able to catch on once you understand the history as well. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's just really fascinating. I could, I could talk about it. Yeah. All, yeah. All day. Same. So let's, let's speed up a little to, you know, the current day. So one thing that I've been talking sure. to people about is, um, you know, we are living through biblical times, right? We're living through like a pandemic. Um, how has, um, how has, COVID-19, how has this impacted your work, your life, your, your, uh, your work as an artist? Oh, well, I mean, on a very, you know, visceral material level, I got laid off from my job a couple of weeks ago because of the virus. Um, our, our, the business um, fell off a cliff and uh, uh, the company closed down. Uh, the entire operation here in LA. So that port was a Portland-based uh, coffee company, um, but they uh, they laid myself and all of my coworkers off. Um, so I've just been, um, you know, sheltering in place, waiting for the unemployment checks to start rolling in. Um, I have I had the the kind of uh, motivation to to work on music. Uh, since this all kind of started, I was kind of really, really freaked out by the whole thing. Um, and it took a, a lot of my energy to kind of like make sense of what was going on and, uh, you know, reading the news and, and trying to learn every, everything I could about, um, the virus and, and, and what was, what was happening and, um, wasn't really able to to focus on anything outside of that for a couple of weeks. Um, but once I got laid off, um, there's this, um, socialist organization, uh, here, uh, I met a couple members at a, a Bernie Sanders, um, campaign event, um, started talking to them. And, um, I've been kind of like, uh, sitting in on their meetings and, and volunteering with them a little bit. I mean, as much as you can be engaged with something like that from, from your bedroom, um, but that's kind of given me a, a little, uh, a little more energy, a little purpose, uh, instead of just sit, sitting around reading the news for 12 hours a day. So that's been pretty cool. I want to get started on some new Hasufel material. I have some people interested in, in putting out, um, you know, some, some more stuff, but I got to have like a solid concept I can kind of hook into and just something that kind of like will keep me stimulated intellectually as well as artistically at the same time. So I'm kind of waiting. I've got a couple of like little ethereal ideas that I could maybe, you know, materialize into something that gets me real excited and something will happen again soon. 
but I'm not trying to force anything musically right now. Um, just cause it, it is such a weird time and a weird situation. Like, yeah. yeah, that's kind of the consensus that I'm getting from a lot of people that like nobody, not a whole lot of people are like in the mood right now, you know, to be like making music and art and it makes total sense, right? Like all the available bandwidth that we used to have to process, you know, everything that's going on is now just being sucked up by like just the worsening news, you know, around the world. So yeah, I think this is a time where, you know, artists need to see themselves as humans first, right? And and realize that we're all kind of suffering through this um, in, in various, various ways. I mean, or, or in, in differing ways, not everybody's suffering. Um, but uh but but realize that like everybody is experiencing this together right and so this just because you have more free time on your hands doesn't mean that you have uh like an obligation or a duty to crank out more work it's like yeah which i mentioned this to my girlfriend the other day i was like wow I, you know all i've been wanting for the past couple of years is unlimited time to work on music and now now that i have it i can't even bother flipping on my synthesizers um and like it'll come to me but part of my creative process is um i need before i start a project everything for me is very compartmentalized like every project has a a a theme or an idea or concept behind it and every every tape every you know every recording is kind of its own enclosed little piece of you know the larger hasufel um kind of universe or whatever but uh there has to be i have to have a really strong concept that i want to commit to and that's really the the main thing that's holding me back right now um once i once something clicks i'll be like in the studio like nonstop. but it's been hard to kind of like navigate this and, and kind of like for stuff to start to conceptually solidify in a way where i'm uh, energized and, and motivated to, to spend more free time on music. Yeah. Well, let's hope that um, it, that will find its course at some time that is appropriate for, for you to start making music. And uh, I'm excited to hear what that kind of conceptual uh, drive is um, because it's been really, really fun. Uh, delving into um, Winter on the Hill Kimura. It's been, yeah, a real, tr- a, a, a real treat for, for me. Outside, like, just contextually, musically, it's, it's amazing as well. But yeah, it's, it's got some real, oh, nice, uh, real nice Easter eggs. Um, so yeah, well, so yeah, that kind of uh, brings us to the end here. Um, anything else that you wanna, um, you wanna plug or anything that, you know, you, um, want to want to bring up before before we close um not really i guess um i would say check out chondritic sound the the label that released winter on the hill kimura they um put out a couple of other cool albums uh, at the same time part of a really solid batch and um my friend um snatchel ernest wilden released his first book on the label too and that's uh that's a really fun one let me uh yeah let me let me plug uh Kaluna Norte uh by Snatch Wilden 
Uh, it's available on Chondritic Sound too. So if you want to check out Winter on the Hill Kimura, pick up uh, pick up his book as well. So I guess that's my that's my pluggables. Awesome. Well, thanks again so much for agreeing to to talk with me. This has been this has been really fun. You don't find too many you know ex Mormons oh, in the uh, experimental yeah, music community. Yeah, yeah, of course. Thank <laughs> you.